Welcome to the Disney at Work podcast, bringing magical ideas to improve your world from the happiest place on earth. Your host is J. Jeff Kober, author, speaker, and consultant to organizations around the globe that look to bring best of Disney ideas to their workplace. Welcome to the Disney at Work podcast. I'm Jeff Gover, your host on today's show. Today we celebrate Mickey's 90th anniversary with five best in business lessons from 90 years of Mickey Mouse. Now you can't host a conversation about Mickey without having a real expert on hand. So I am thrilled to welcome an old friend of mine, author, writer, teacher, and Disney's finest unofficial historian, Jim Corkin. Hey, Jim, how are you doing today? Hey, thank you so much, uh, Jeff, for inviting me. I'm always uh, excited to talk about Mickey Mouse and and Disney and also point out, you know, uh, many of those uh, basic concepts that uh, people can transfer uh, to their own businesses, to their own lives. Yeah, now this is our first time doing a podcast, Jim, but we've known each other for like 20 years, going together. <laughs> uh, since dinosaurs walked the earth, yes. Oh, or at least, or, or at least since dinosaurs together. walked through Epcot, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, we were together doing business, a professional business program at the, at the Institute. In fact, for those who follow Jim, on, on all the websites, I knew Jim long before most people knew, knew you by your pseudonym, Wade uh, Sampson. So that's, mm-hmm. that's how far I go back uh, with Jim. And both of us go... Right. So, so basically, Jeff knew me before I was Jim Corcus. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was generous of the court to change back your name to what it was. So... <laughs> so and both of us go way back with the mouth. And so mm-hmm. I want to start, before we get into all the business stuff, Jim, do you have an early or favorite memory of Mickey going back in time? Oh, uh, gosh, of course, because uh, around Christmas time, uh, because I, I was uh, even a, a Disney child, um uh, one of the first uh, uh, gifts I got was uh, uh, a dozen uh, Disney comic books published by uh, Dell Comics, no and some way. of those were uh, with uh, Mickey Mouse. And in fact, uh, uh, in the days before you know uh, uh, VCRs and uh, all of that, uh, the only time you would get a chance to see Mickey would be on uh, maybe the Disney TV show or mm-hmm. um, uh, if it was released as a theatrical cartoon. So you had to find uh, other venues. And uh, yeah. uh, comic books uh, certainly uh, filled that where uh, you still stayed in touch with uh, uh, Walt's uh, alter ego there. You know, it's so funny you mentioned that because did you ever did you ever collect the Disneyland um, um, monthly comic book. Yes. So it was kind of a larger size comic thing, and, mm-hmm. and it would feature many Disney stories. Uh, it would feature like 
something ongoing with the Seven Dwarfs or with Cinderella and the Mice or something. I, 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 every month I was off to collect one of those. I think it was a monthly, monthly, uh, uh, maybe it was a weekly thing. I can't remember. No, no, it, 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 it was monthly, I believe. And, uh, yes, you know, that, that's how you, you stayed in touch. And, uh, again, uh, the stories, just like the animated films, were timeless. So you could go back and, and reread. And uh, then there was always that uh, frustration if you missed an issue, that, that there was a gap in your collection. You know, back in the days before there were uh, comic book shops or eBay, so you could track down that, that missing uh, uh, issue, that was like heartbreaking. You know, it, it was like... Well, I'll never be able to find this. You know, it'll never be complete. Yeah, no, I uh, I was a big a big fan of that, and I would walk down to the Utotem <laughs> convenience store to buy a copy. What a terrible name for a store, uh, Utotem. And um, and then I have to say, my favorite memory was, and this is not really dating me as much as it sounds like it's going to date me. I would come home every day, and watch the Mickey Mouse Club show. Now, I am mm-hmm. not that old. I don't go back to the 1950s, but in the But, 50s, but they were continually they, uh, rerunning it. So they in the were, 60s, yeah, they, they were, were rerunning it. And, and, and in fact, even when the Disney Channel uh, uh, geared up in uh, 83, they were rerunning the original uh, uh, Mickey right. Mouse Club. And... Uh, once again, you're you're having an entire generation of, of kids who don't see this as, as old. As far as they know, this was just filmed yesterday. And, uh, you know, Annette Funicello is uh, always young. Oh, and i got to tell you, I went through puberty, you know, with uh, with my heart torn, torn between Annette and Darlene. It was, a real, it was really <laughs> hard to figure out who... Who would I want to date most with one of the two? Because I love Darlene's voice, but but and that was so so sweet and so mm-hmm. and so and, um, and okay. see even even as we talk, we're 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 seeing and and I'm sure people who are listening to this podcast as well too is there's this emotional investment with Disney. Disney mm-hmm. has become part of our uh, uh, DNA, so much so that we think we know. We we think we know uh, uh, Mickey Mouse because we all grew up with uh, uh, Mickey Mouse, either by watching the cartoons or reading the, the, the comic books or uh, hearing a song or watching the, the TV show, whatever. And yet there's still so much... Uh, to uncover there's still so yeah. many connections that um we don't consciously pay attention to because of that terrific emotional investment and and in fact uh, uh most of us get that the moment we step into a disney theme park uh it just feels different it feels different than a, a, a six flags or a or a sea world or a universal despite the fact that those entertainment venues uh, provide some outstanding uh, experiences, a Disney experience is completely different. And, and some of that is because of that emotional investment we have. 
So true. Let me, if I could, let me build on that. Um, I, you know, what it, I try to do is help organiza- help organizations truly become a Mickey Mouse operation. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes we which, 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 be- which believe it or not, Mickey Mouse operation used to be a really um, positive uh, term. You know, you even had uh, songs of, you know, you're the top, you're Mickey Mouse. It yeah. wasn't until after World War II that Mickey Mouse became... Um, a derogatory term, because during uh, World War II, what would happen is some of the kids who had grown up with um, uh, Mickey Mouse watches or listening to Mickey Mouse uh, uh, music, mm-hmm. during World War II, it became a derogatory term because the Mickey Mouse watches were made very cheaply, so they would fall apart. Uh, and uh, Mickey Mouse music referred to uh, music where every single uh, movement had to have a musical beat. So very similar to burlesque music or um, circus music or whatever. And so for musicians, that was considered derogatory. Oh, that's just a Mickey Mouse band. They're pa- playing something that's popular or they're playing something where they're, they're trying to emphasize you know, movement rather than concentrate on that. And so that's where Mickey Mouse became a derogatory term. But uh, it's interesting. So, so let me just share with you when I was doing my thesis, which was on Disney educational media. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you remember the the name Carl Nader, but mm-hmm. he was over that division, and he did a lot with the the war films during World War II. And so I went through a lot of his archival stuff, and, and they were long, long tapes. But um, Carl told the story about the first time he ever heard the term Mickey Mouse operation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, uh, you know, they, the, when the war came about, uh, Walt agreed um, to work with uh, the Department of Treasury in developing the film The New Spirit with, mm-hmm. with Donald Duck. Uh, and to encourage people deal. to pl- pay taxes, yes. Yes, to encourage people to pay taxes, which was not an expected, obligatory kind of thing that, you know, mm-hmm. everybody does every every year. So so Walt offered up Donald Duck to do this, and it was it was a big thing, and actually it was very effective in getting people to, to get on board. Of course, the whole war effort was one, the sympathy of people to, to help out. But, um, but, but when you get into a, into a, into a, an agreement with the U.S. government, the way they they thank you is by running an audit on you afterwards. And, mm-hmm. so, and so the Senate kind of, wow, we throwing money away on Mickey Mouse shorts when we got a war going on. And, and so they came and the, and the Treasury had to do an audit on, on the company's financials. Mm-hmm. And they came and looked at, at their system of rows and columns, and it was a very basic rudimentary accounting system that the company had put in place. And the first and 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 Carl Nader sitting down with them going through this their explan their explanation of this or their uh their summary of this was, man, this is a real Mickey Mouse operation. Meaning <laughs> meaning that that really Mickey is just simply um circles. Simple circles. Mm-hmm. And they were basically saying this is a very simplistic op- operation. But going back to what you were saying, 
Jim, there's something amazing that a few simple circles lined up in a certain way create such an emotional outcome for people. Um, it is truly one of the great um, brand symbols out there, icons out there, and yet it's really just a few circles. Put together. Well, and and, and, and again, they've done psychological uh, studies where, when Mickey Mouse comes on TV, uh, little children will crawl up to touch the TV, <laughs> even if they have never seen Mickey Mouse uh, uh, before. Uh, Imagineer John Hench mentioned that um, there was a Red Cross uh, uh, ship that w was uh, trying uh, in Africa to you know, give uh, vaccinations and medical care, and nobody would come. And as soon as they made arrangements to paint Mickey Mouse on the side of the ship, suddenly they were flooded <laughs> by people uh, who came in. And uh, Disney legend um, uh, Alice Davis, who was married to Mark Davis, who, uh, who designed uh, Tinkerbell and Cruella DeVille and so many great characters, uh, was telling me that when she and her husband, Mark, uh, went to New Guinea, uh, they loved traveling, and Mark loved being exposed to uh, different types of uh, uh, folk art, you know, right. that he might be able to incorporate into his own. Extensively, yeah. Right, and so uh, they went to this remote village that had never seen foreigners before. And as they approached the village with their guide, out of the bush ran this little girl wearing a Mickey Mouse T-shirt. Wow, go figure. Middle of nowhere. And, and so you, you go, my gosh. And, and again, Mickey is uh, unique, uh, more so than a, a, a Bugs Bunny or a, or a Woody Woodpecker or a Bart Simpson or a, a SpongeBob SquarePants because Mickey is universal. Everybody yeah. accepts Mickey as as part of them, as as part of their uh, uh, culture, and part of that is because Walt established Mickey Mouse differently as a character. You know, we are going to be celebrating Mickey's uh, 90th. You know, uh, with the the original release in 1928 of Steamboat Willie. But mm -hmm. nobody ever questions, why is it not called Steamboat Mickey? Well, first off, nobody would have known Mickey Mouse in, in, in the first cartoon, but Walt specifically called it Steamboat Willie because he wanted to establish that you are not seeing the adventures of Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse is an actor, just like Clark Gable or Cary Grant, and he mm -hmm. may be playing parts that are very similar to his own personality, but he is an actor playing a role. So Mickey Mouse is not a steamboat captain and never was a steamboat captain, but he is playing the role of a captain of a steamboat. And so exactly. that set Mickey Mouse apart from any other animated character, and it also made people um, uh, embrace him just as they embraced uh, other uh, movie stars and other celebrities. So let's build on that. I mean, great place to start with our five best in business lessons from mm -hmm. nine years of Mickey. Let's start with Steamboat um, Willie, which 
um, did premiere on that date, but we all know that Mickey kind of had a had a couple of other um, cartoons previous. And uh, tell us how technology really made Steamboat Willie stand out. Well, and 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 again, uh, what happened is. Uh, uh, Walt was in the right place at the right time. He had uh, recently uh, lost uh, the rights to do uh, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit because he had never uh, copyrighted that in his own name. It had been copyrighted uh, for the studio that uh, uh, was distributing uh, the cartoons. And so uh, Walt was more or less a hired hand, and even though... The series was very popular. He could be replaced, and Walt felt that from then on, he would own everything that that he did. But it was very difficult to come up with a new character because at that time, uh, animated cartoons were considered um, just a novelty. They were often referred to as trick films because uh, uh, cartoons mm-hmm. would move, and and that that was a trick. Uh, and so he tried to create a new character, uh, Mickey Mouse, and he made a, a cartoon called Plain Crazy, and it was silent, which was the standard for cartoons at that time, and no one was interested. And then he made a, a, another Mickey Mouse cartoon, which was silent, called uh, Galloping Gaucho, and nobody wanted to distribute it. Nobody, and at that particular time, uh, in, uh, live action films uh mm-hmm. Al Jolson's The Jazz Singer, Jazz Singer was TV. released and it was only supposed to be Al Jolson singing but Al Jolson was a stage performer so he was used to in his stage act leading into the song with a little bit of dialogue and sometimes it was all different and so they didn't know exactly when to start recording so they would capture a little bit of the dialogue before he started singing the song in order to make sure that they got the song. And what blew audiences away was not the the song, but the little bit of dialogue before the song, because the rest of the film just has silent titles. And so this just amazed audiences, and Walt immediately jumped onto that and said, we're going to make a Mickey Mouse cartoon, but we're going to do it with synchronized sound. Now, what synchronized sound is, is the sound is synchronized uh, to the actions on the screen. So if a whistle opens and blows, that's when you hear the whistle sound. You know, it relates exactly to what is happening on the screen. Mm -hmm. It is synchronized to that. And... um, Walt was very scared. He was taking a risk because he felt that maybe people would not believe that the sound was coming from that drawing. Uh, that maybe there was somebody standing uh, uh, behind the, the movie screen uh, doing that or some other uh, type of trick. In fact, some of the first live-action talking films, uh, uh, people believed that there was somebody standing behind the screen talking at the same time that the movie was uh, uh, being run. And so uh, it wasn't just the fact that here is a cartoon 
that has sound. It's here's a cartoon where the sound matches what you are seeing. And uh, it was uh, unprecedented. Yeah. And uh, it, But also, remember, it wasn't just the novelty of doing the sound. You had to have a good story. You had to have a sympathetic character. You know, those are the hallmarks of uh, uh, Disney animation. But that sound, my gosh, made it stand out so that in those days, a cartoon might run maybe for one week at a theater and then, you know, go to a different theater and then go to a different theater because each week there were so many cartoons coming out that you replace it with another cartoon. Mickey stayed there at the Colony Theater for uh, two weeks straight and then went to the Roxy Theater where it stayed for another six weeks. Hmm. And and again, this is unprecedented. And also the fact, my gosh, if you've got a cartoon that is out there and is staying there so long, you don't have to produce another cartoon right away. (laughs) (laughs) Because that one's already generating income. Yeah. Yeah, and no, and it, it, and again, Walt built on that yeah. uh, uh, technology well, because it's it, it's Walt was never satisfied. Let's increase it. So when Mickey appears in Fantasia in 1940, Walt develops a sound system called Fantasound, where you would be immersed in. Um, uh, the sound of the film. So you, so you would hear the rumbling of the waves uh, coming along the sides of the theater before it crashes, you know, in front of you uh, uh, on the screen. And unfortunately, Fantasound happened just as the war, World War II, was beginning. And so there wasn't the equipment that was available for the sound system because everything was de- devoted to the war effort. It was also an expensive process, but interestingly enough, one young man who was in the theater and saw, you know, that initial uh, Fantasound that only ran in uh, less than uh, a dozen theaters, he was so impressed that he went on to invent Dolby uh, for for movie theaters uh, because he had seen that and he wanted to recreate that effect. And so you never know how that technology is then going to start to uh, affect and grow. And you know that is that is that was just simply Walt's philosophy from there on out. Embrace mm-hmm. the technology and helping to tell your story and helping to create that emotional appeal and helping to really convey what you wanted to. It is and 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 really where the company has always succeeded is it's always tried to find um, those new opportunities to really embrace the technology and to, to build it into the organization. And, and, I, and what makes Disney different is not just embracing the technology, but humanizing it. So, for yeah. instance, when, we, uh, uh, when Walt Disney World opened in 1971, uh, the iconic... Um, uh, attraction at Walt Disney World Mickey was Review. Mickey Mouse Review, yeah. where you had audio animatronic Mickey Mouse leading an orchestra of other audio animatronic Disney characters playing Disney music. 
audio animatronics came from declassified NASA information. Mm -hmm. When a rocket uh, is uh, sent up into the air, I just felt, oh, well, it, it must be timed for each stage to drop off or when it hits a particular uh, area of the atmosphere, that's what happened. No, those different stages are locked on by a clamp. And what NASA would do is they would send a specific sound pulse and that clamp would open, which mm -hmm. would release that stage. So it's closed and then uh, you, you send the sound pulse and it opens and you uh, then kill the sound pulse and it closes. My gosh, that's just like a bird's beak. So you could use that for tiki birds. And that's Absolutely. why it's called yeah. audio animatronics, animatronics, audio for that sound pulse, anima for animation or movement, and uh, tronics yeah. for electronics. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it continues on after that. We have we have mm -hmm. Stellar Magic, which, you know, at that point, you know, was a kind of new thing to see Disney movies in a 3D form. Um, you know, that evolved over time. We have a talking Mickey. When you go to the parks, we have the new Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway Train, which is mm -hmm. uh, going to be both a GPS-type uh, ride system, like uh, Blue's Honey Hunt in Tokyo, but also have this, what they refer to as a 2.5D, a kind of a 3D <laughs> kind of feel without having to wear the glasses on the mm -hmm. ride. So it's little things sometimes, and it's big things sometimes. And, and, but, and but, but it's not just embracing the technology, it's how can I use the technology to tell the story of my company? Right. To tell how the story of new ways to use How do you find new ways to use technology to support the delivery of the products and services you have to offer? So, to, and, to and, and, and make, it, and make okay. it accessible. You know, I, I know there's an awful lot of technology out there that I I struggle with, you know, because it, it seems today more than ever that technology is either prototype or obsolete. There's nothing in between, <laughs> you know, and, and, and things are just constantly uh, uh, changing. You know, you, you were talking about uh, uh, growing up watching the uh, Mickey Mouse Club. I, I, I grew up. Uh, with things like rotary dial phones and uh, uh, fax machines and and uh, pagers and uh, uh, you know uh, VHS, you know, and and all of that was just like, oh, it'll never be any better than this, you know. This, yeah. this well, without this the, is, without the invention of the copy machine, we couldn't have had 101 Dalmatians. No, well, no, be, be, because you couldn't crazy. register all of those spots. You couldn't hand-draw all yet, of those, yes. And yet, you know, people don't go because, oh, my gosh, there's a, there's a they, they use a copier. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you go because, because you fall in love with, with, exactly. with the puppies and you fall in love with exactly. the, uh, their their story and, 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 and you're scared. That, so, yes, Disney is very innovative in terms of using technology and, and the latest in technology, but they don't just take the technology. It's how can we use it, you know, uh, as, as part of our storytelling, as, as just another tool to tell the story of what our business uh, 
is of, of how to create, you know, that, that happiness. And also, let's make that technology uh, accessible and easy. You know, even if it's a, a magic band, which has Mickey's uh, uh, silhouette uh, on, it. on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so let's go to number two. Technology, do you, how do you use technology to continually improve how you share and deliver your product? Let's go to the second one that I think is a, a wonderful business lesson. Um, it takes a team to build a Mickey Mouse cartoon, and you know this because you mm-hmm. taught animation. So it, a lot of people don't even appreciate what it takes to really get a a consistent looking Mickey Mouse. You know, yes, I'm just it, 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 a couple it, of Well, when, when Mickey Mouse started, of course, it's uh, uh, 24 drawings for each second of film. 24 yeah. drawings for each second. And um, so you're drawing thousands of, of drawings. And, and again, that would be difficult, you know, for one person. You know, you need to have other people involved. You'd never be able uh, to uh, create an animated feature uh, with just one person, you know, uh, in, in any type of timely uh, uh, fashion. But, yeah. but the problem is, is that everybody, when, as an artist, everybody has their own little uh, distinctive touches. That, so mm-hmm. you, you can't, in those 24 drawings, you can't have one, one drawing where Mickey's ears are too big or his ears are too small because when it's then run, that becomes very clear, you know, and it, it pulls you out of that experience. It all has to be consistent. And so Walt developed what were called model sheets. A model sheet would show Mickey um, in uh, different poses, uh, different expressions, even in the earliest Mickey Mouse cartoons, how tall Mickey was, uh, you know, how to draw Mickey's hand, so that when you have dozens of artists, they are all in, creating the same Mickey One Mouse. Mickey. Yeah. Now, 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 now again, there's always going to be little variations. I, I, I knew um, uh, Jack Hanna, who was the director of a lot of the Donald Duck cartoons, and sometimes I would sit with him and we would watch a Donald Duck cartoon that he directed, and he goes, oh, that's Bill Justice's. Donald, that's uh, Volus Jones, wow. and, and and I'm straining, I'm straining to look because it all looked like Donald Duck, but for for Jack who spent his life with that, he could tell if the beak was you know just a, a fraction longer or if it curved up just a little bit more than the than the other. But for the average eye, you know, it all looked exactly like Donald Duck, and the same thing with the the Mickey Mouse cartoons and. So you have to have people working together uh, to to produce this, and everybody brings in uh, something uh, to to the project. It, it, it's almost yeah. like a, a, a soup where people bring in different ingredients. So this person will ink, and this person will bring in the sound, and this person will bring in uh, the the color, and you know, uh, so that you have that. But they all have to work together, and they all have to know, that's the purpose of the model sheet, where you are going. Because you know this as well as I do. You know, when you join the Disney company, uh, the mission statement is, we create happiness. Mm-hmm. However, happiness looks different to me now 
than it did when I was 13 or when I was 22. So the Disney company has to define what uh, happiness is. So they had the seven service standards of, you know, we, yeah. we want you to uh, greet you each had, and you every guest. You had to create a North Star so that everybody was pointed in the same direction. So you had right. a safety courtesy show and efficiency as the four keys. And, and those kinds of tools, like model sheets, mm-hmm. come to create a, kind of a one Disney kind of experience. When guests would come, when I'd host, whenever I host people, uh, business folks in the parks and so forth, I'm always asked, so how many, how many Mickey Mouses are there really? Mm-hmm. And, and they're missing the question. They're missing the question because it's not about how many Mickey Mouses, you know, one for the parade or one for character meet and grade and so forth, one in the Epcot, one in the – it's not that. The question is how many people does it take to create one Mickey Mouse? Mm-hmm. And and that's a powerful and, and it takes a village. Whenever it takes you a village. reach – Yeah, it takes, <laughs> it takes a village. And uh, a village called Central Shops and a few others. <laughs> and, a, and a village called – Entertainment and a village called costuming and a village. You know, it takes these villages coming together to create this very unified experience. And and it's so funny because you and I know we've been backstage. We know how this all mm-hmm. works. But even when we're on stage and we are suddenly we suddenly step in front of our old boss, uh, it it just feels like Mickey Mouse. It just it, always it, feels it, like it, Mickey Mouse. You are you are absolutely you are absolutely not. Right, you know, even though you know how the food is prepared, <laughs> when it's served, it still tastes great. And and the same thing, even though you know all of those things that get involved when you are on stage and you see Mickey there, you just you can't help but smile. You can't help yeah. but but wave. Yeah. That is Mickey Mouse. Even and, even um, people like us, as old as we are, we've been around it all. We mm-hmm. still feel the magic. We still feel that smile come on our faces, and it it, it really is magical. It's, it's, it's well because it's because again, everybody is trained to go to that same goal. It's just like a football team. This is the direction we're going. That's where the goal is. That's where we have to get. And each Move of you are way. doing di- each of you are doing different things, but all of us are going together to try and get the ball over there. And and that's the same thing uh, with Disney, whether it, whether it's in uh, a film or whether it's in the parks or whether it's in on the cruise line or or whatever. The goal is very clear, and that is where you are headed. Even though you may have different contributions that you're making uh, uh, to get there. So lesson number two is: How did your team come together to create one? solid customer guest experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, number three deals with a word that was really kind of made famous by Michael Eisner, but but Mickey's been doing it long before <laughs> Michael showed up to the table. And it, the word is synergy. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea that the, um, that the sum of the individual products and services is greater um, then this, or, or that the total of, of everything put together is greater than the sum of the individual parts. In other words, one plus one equals three. And what Disney has done so effectively 
is it has taken what was simply, it all began with the mouse, mm-hmm. and created an organization that that moves in so many different directions and and becomes greater than, again, just a theme park here, a T-shirt there, a film or a short over there. It becomes this larger piece, um, all of which, you know, falls under under the umbrella of Mickey Mouse. So, and, you, and, and, and you're right. That Michael Eisner is the one who came up with that uh, name, Synergy. Yeah. How, however, the Disney company used it even back with Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Roy O. Disney, Walt's brother, called it cross-pollinization. And, uh, in, in fact, for Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, uh, Universal, who was distributing the cartoons, uh, released a candy bar, a uh, stencil set, uh, all of those, those things, and the Disney's didn't receive one penny from it, and Roy famously said, we're not a toy company, we're, we're a motion picture studio. And when Mickey uh, came, the point was, Mickey Mouse is brand new, how do you publicize this, especially if Mickey is only going to be in a movie theater one week, and then it'll be several weeks before the next Mickey Mouse cartoon comes how do you keep up uh, the enthusiasm? How do you keep up the interest? How do you do that? And so the Disney studio found that if people had a Mickey Mouse doll, if they had a Mickey Mouse storybook, suddenly they could relive the uh, stories that they had seen with Mickey or they could create new ones. And it, the experience. And, um, and it wasn't until, yeah, 1933 when Kay Kamen came in mm-hmm. and uh, took over merchandising. He was a merchandising uh, genius. He had worked with uh, uh, other uh, franchises, including uh, our gang and all that. Mm-hmm. And he convinced the Disneys, he said, look, it's not just enough to have that material out there. You need to have quality material. You know, because you want not just Mickey Mouse recognized, but Mickey Mouse recognized as a quality product. And, uh, you know, you need to uh, control all of this. You don't want Mickey Mouse on um, things that would be offensive to children. So you don't want Mickey Mouse publicizing cigarettes. You don't want him on uh, castor oil. And yeah. so he stepped in and uh started to formalize that that and he looked for he looked for options that the Disney's had not even thought of. So you would get uh Donald Duck orange juice or Snow White bread. You know, yeah. who would who would ever have thought of, of you know that being, you know, a connection. Yeah. He created such a strong merchandising uh, unit that in the first year, merchandising alone brought in more money than was made on all of the Mickey Mouse cartoons that were released that year. And well, and interestingly, it helped to fuel Walt in taking it beyond the Silly Symphonies, beyond Mickey Mouse, to the development of Snow White. 
I mean, those right. monies really helped give him that capital that he needed along with the bank loan to really move toward a full-length animated feature, which then and, expands and, the library, expands the synergy, and it just it just it just blossoms, it blooms. And 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 again, what happens is is that money was also there as the seed money, as the foundation money for Disneyland, mm-hmm. uh, because all of that merchandising money was coming in. And again, w- what was happening is somebody would hear a a song from a a Disney film, and that would make them want to see the Disney film and make them want to buy the uh, uh, Disney comic book, you know, uh, based on, on that film. And yep. uh, so, you know, everything supported everything else. And and yeah. again, you know, just like we talked about having a model sheet, you know, for animation, you have that uh, model sheet for your synergy of, how can you reach out to other audiences other than your core audience and um but still maintain your story of this is quality this is magic this is family you know so so you have to monitor that but all of that you know just continually builds as you said 1 plus 1 equals 3 you know, uh, so the, the sum is greater than the individual parts. Exactly. So that's the message to, to folks. How do you think about your products and services in a way that the total becomes greater than the sum of the individual parts? You're not just doing pieces there, but it becomes one total experience. Um, and that and that extends into so many things, whether Disney went into television, whether Disney went into parks, whether Disney went into the resort business, the cruise line business. You know, there's so many different extensions of that uh, as a result of that synergy. So that's number three. Number four, uh, and and you alluded to this a little earlier, Jim. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's something about Mickey Mouse that makes it, everybody feel like it's their mouse, and mm-hmm. and and so they they make the product their own, and and. And Disney has done a wonderful job of making Mickey a universal figure. So he's Popolino in Italy. He's known as uh, Milao Shu, I think is how it's said, in mm-hmm. China. And, and go figure, Moose Pig in China. Yes. He's got all <laughs> the Moosey Pig. Moosey Pig Moosey is what Pig, is that how it's said? So, so that, that worldwide appeal. And, and I have, it is, it is astonishing to stand in an enormous line in the front of Tokyo Disney where you see thousands of people wait for the park to open in a way that, yeah, you see a lot of people waiting for for the front of Disneyland or, or Magic Kingdom for it to open, but we're talking a massive number of people and people whose affinity and love of all things Disney is, I, I'm telling you, we, you know, for, for two two guys like us who even write books about this, you know, sometimes, sometimes it, it, love, it, 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 it's Disney amazing. It, it, it's, it's unique. You you really yeah. don't see that with any other character. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and, and, do pe- and do people really embrace American Express or Coca-Cola or, or well, there's a little bit of Apple products, I guess. People have learned to embrace Apple products. It, it can certainly could be done with other products and services, but but the role model for embracing a global 
um, brand is is clearly Disney. They have done such an amazing job. You know, one of the things that really set the stage for Disney going into China was that it it had started these English schools throughout um, throughout the uh, throughout the country, where kids mm-hmm. after school would come and they would learn about um, they would learn English through Disney. Through mm-hmm. Mickey Mouse, through all the Disney characters. In fact, when you're um, on uh, Mickey Avenue in Shanghai Disney, you see references to fairly obscure Disney characters. I mean, most Americans most Americans don't know who um, uh, is it is it Willie the Whale that sang mm-hmm. the Met? What was the name? The, yeah, yes. and uh, yeah, and Johnny Appleseed and Pecos Bill, and most people don't even know these. But Disney's taken them and used them as some kind of way of teaching English or some, you know, some words or something of that nature. And they're all over. They're all over and they embrace. Well, uh, and, 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 and uh, you know, I'm always amazed that in, in Japan that they embraced uh, uh, Marie, the little white uh, kitten from oh. the cat. Is that because uh, Because, again, I, I personally do not consider Aristocats a very strong film in terms of story, in terms of character, even in terms of, of uh, uh, animation. And yet, uh, for some reason, the Japanese found the little white kitten, Marie, and so there is a ton of merchandise available in Japan of Marie, whereas uh, she is, as, as you have pointed out, a reasonably obscure character uh, in, in the United States. That's a great example. Another one, again, from Japan. It was, I guess it's now been, what, 10 or 15 years ago that there was a trade at ESPN for a, mm-hmm. for a major um, uh, sportscaster. And mm-hmm. part of the trade Al Michael, was to yes. take over. Yeah, Al Michael, thank you. And, uh, and part of the trade was taking over from Universal the ownership of of uh, of Mortimer, um, the, Mickey's predecessor, which uh, uh, Oswald the the rabbit. Oh, I'm sorry, I said I'm sorry, I said Mortimer. Yeah, uh, Mortimer was going to be uh, uh, Mickey's original name, but original yeah, Oswald yeah, the rabbit. But but only the Oswald that had been done by Disney, because after they kicked Walt out, they brought in, believe it or not, Walter Lance, who later created Andy Panda and Woody Woodpecker, and right. he did a series of of uh, Oswald cartoons, Oswald. but only the cartoons uh, that had been done by Walt Disney, they reverted back uh, to the Disney company. Yeah, thank you for clarifying. I meant to say Oswald. Where I'm trying to get into the story... Well, the, 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 pro- the problem is, Jeff, is we know so much, <laughs> and we get so passionate that, you know... Where I was trying to get into the story is that it was already part of some electronic game mm-hmm. yes. in Japan that the Japanese were already big into Oswald um, at the time of that sale. And uh, and so it's it's just fascinating to see how global the, the Disney brand has been, and I think it's a great uh, lesson to any organization. Well, uh, Walt once said about Donald Duck that uh, Donald Duck is uh, uh, speaks a universal language. And by that, he means that he can't be understood in any language, 
whatsoever. <laughs> and, 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 but, but, but people recognize the personality. And, and again, yeah. Disney is very yeah. famous, uh, for what is considered personality animation. So it's not just a character doing funny things. It's a character that thinks, a character that feels. And so you could predict, uh, what that character would do or what that character would not do. And, and in fact, in story meetings, uh, uh, oftentimes Walt would be told a story and would be laughing, and then at the end, and, and the story men think, oh my gosh, okay, we've sold this to Walt, and at the end Walt says, no, we're not going to do that story because that's not what Mickey would do. It's very funny, mm-hmm. but that's not what Mickey would do. And... Um, so Mickey has become a very real uh personality throughout uh the entire world and I think it's because in a lot of his uh early cartoons especially there's an awful lot of pantomime involved and Mickey speaks um uh very little you know uh mm-hmm. it's uh Ha-ha, gosh oh come here girl oh boy <laughs> you know he he he, do- he doesn't yeah. do uh, you know, long monologues, you know. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous yeah. fortune. You know, a- after a while you go, yeah. I'm not listening to this anymore. Yeah, and and so I, th- I think because of the pantomime, very much like Charlie Chaplin, you know, he becomes embraced. And in fact, uh, originally at uh, the theme parks, you never heard Mickey speak because the philosophy was we have an international audience and they have all heard them, all heard Mickey in their own language. It, it, it's like the story of uh, Walt was over in uh, Germany with Harry Teitler, who was a uh, uh, producer on The Wonderful World of Disney. And uh, Teitler, uh, you know, could... Um, uh, was conversational in, in German, but not fluent in German, a, a, enough to get by. And these little kids came running up uh, to Walt and started, you know, chattering away excitedly in, in German. And Harry had to turn to them and, and say, uh, uh, Mr. Disney is very flattered, but Mr. Disney doesn't speak, you know, any German. And the kids froze and they looked mean. They looked angry, and they go, what do you mean he doesn't speak German? We see him on TV, and he speaks perfect German. <laughs> Go figure. Go figure. Well. And, 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 and so, you know, you, you, you start uh, uh, to accept that. And, and so, you know, it, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy there that, that Mickey is universal, and yet he very clearly represents a symbol of the United States. So uh, during the Korean conflict, um, the American military asked their uh, uh, Korean consultants there that they were going to be establishing a, um, uh, uh, an office, and what could they put on the office so that it would immediately be recognized as this is the United States, and that they, they assumed that, you know, it would be the flag or something like that. A hundred percent said... Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so when they put Mickey Mouse on the office building, everybody knew that's where the United States is. 
You know, and I think it's even more than just the United States. I think Mickey just represents all the good in this world. Mm-hmm. And and people can can embrace it, it, it makes it easy for people to embrace it. And and, I think and, 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 and to love him because he's not yeah. the smartest mouse in the world. He He's not the strongest mouse in the world. Uh, he doesn't win uh, athletic uh, competitions uh, uh, all the time, but but he's he's loyal to his friends. Uh, he he tries he tries to be brave. Uh, you know, uh, there's a, a shyness uh, uh, about him. You know, you, you don't see, you don't see him um, uh, uh, bragging. You yeah. know, and he has fun. He yeah, has he fun. He, he's optimistic. He's uh, uh, optimistic. He's full yeah. of optimism. Those are the values that that he really that transcend any nationality. The trends mm-hmm. that are universal. And I think you have to say what are you, what are the values of your organization? How do you create a brand that transcends um, again nations? That transcends a local market. But is becomes universally accepted by others. I think that's the that's the the power in in globalizing uh, in the same way that Disney has successfully done with Mickey and and its and its uh, organization. The the fifth thing we want to talk about, and I, it's just so uh, it's tenacity. Um, you know, we we know the story, of course, with. His, his, well, not Mortimer, the lucky rabbit, Oswald, the lucky rabbit. We know the story of of Walt experiencing um, failure, and that really becomes the genesis for creating Mickey. I, 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 but it also becomes an ongoing story in Walt's life. He is definitely a leader who understood tenacity. He understood how to be patient with ideas until they had fully, fully developed. He understood that um, you, you, you had to put up with some really hard moments to get to the good ones. Um, when you look at Walt's life, and, and you know, Mickey and is really, in many ways, such a personification of Walt. What, what is it? What are the messages of? What are, what are the stories that really just speak to you about Walt's ability to be tenacious? And well, to you, you know, what Walt once said ability. that young people should experience one big failure in their life when they're young. Early on, yeah. Yeah, because they will learn that it doesn't kill them and they can walk away from it and 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 move on. You know, Walt Disney first business, he was bankrupt by the age of um, uh, 21. Yeah. In fact, uh, he was uh, living in the studio because he, he couldn't uh, afford to uh, even get a, a rooming house. And um, friends came by one time and saw him just sitting on the floor uh, eating out of a, a, a can of beans. And, and they go, oh, oh, Walt, how terrible. That's and, and Walt says, what do you mean? I like beans. Uh, Walt never let uh, failure uh, stand in his way because he used it as a um, learning tool. Okay, what can I learn from this 
that I want to then apply. Uh, when Oswald was taken uh, from him, that would have crushed most people, or, or Walt, most people would have begged and, and said, well, look, just pay me a salary and keep me on because, you know, I just got married. I just bought a house. I, I'm going to need this this money. But Walt didn't. Walt goes, you know what? I'm never going to let anybody else own anything I create from now on. And and Walt had lots of um, uh, stumbles, you know, yeah. uh, in his life. But, again, he had so many more hits than misses that you know we we don't uh, we don't think uh you know uh of those things you know even disneyland that that we think of as, as a uh a hit you know there were problems you know he had pack mules there but the pack mules would snap at 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 the kids and would urinate on them as they were standing there you know Did you uh, the pack mules? yes yes because those lasted into the uh, uh, late '60s, so yeah I, yeah, I I was able to, and and I was always just worried I was going to fall off the pack mule. But again, yeah, Walt yeah, wanted I'm that because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Walt, Walt wanted it to be authentic, and and so um, uh, Frontierland wasn't even paved; it was all just dirt because that dirt? would be the frontier. But but that became a problem, you know. When there's rain, now there's mud. Now mud. there's dirt swirling all around. So so you know you have to find uh, that balance, and and sometimes you don't know what that is until after you've done it, until after you've uh, taken that that chance, and then sometimes it pays off later. So for instance, when Fantasia came out, it didn't make back uh, the money for production, and and it could be for a, a variety of, of different reasons, like it was not really shown the way Walt wanted it to be shown with the Fanta sound and, and all of that. But decades later, it was rediscovered, and now it's considered, you know, a classic. Um, yeah. The same thing with Alice in Wonderland. When Alice in Wonderland uh, came out in 1951, you know, it, it was pretty much dead at the box office. But years but later, people... Every Disney theme park has an Alice in Wonderland attraction, and mm-hmm. some have several, uh, because it's just it, it transcends it transcends mm-hmm. the the movie plotline. It, it's a place you want to go. It's a place you want to experience, and uh, and so it's always amazing how how much uh, how how really the great legs that Alice in Wonderland has after all these years. And and, and I think the reason. Things like Fantasia and Alice and all that got rediscovered is because Walt put in the best he could at that time. And so even if audiences at that particular moment didn't respond to it, it was done with such quality that it was then appreciated later. You know, my gosh, take you know, especially now that we've been exposed to all these other different things and these don't seem to have that same level. You know, uh, uh, when we were growing up, Jeff, you know, it, it was unusual to have a, a animated feature film in the movie theaters. Uh, uh, today, yeah. uh, there, the there's dream. one every single week. I, I, I'll, I'll take my nephew, you know, to these. And, and I will be honest, a lot of these just sort of blur together <laughs> in front of me, whereas a I Disney see. film stands out. 
Yeah, I think another part of it is that is that um, tenacity is about reinventing yourself and not mm-hmm. staying stale. And where the company has continually succeeded is in 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 just doing that. I'm I'm not the biggest uh, again uh, because everybody told Walt, look, just do the short cartoons. You're really successful. Yeah. You're making money. That's what you're good at. Do that. He decided to make a feature film. No, no, that's going to be the death of the company. Yes, I'm going to make a theme park. Oh, no, those are dirty. Those are, Nobody wants to go to to that, and there's so many out there already and, and all of that. Yeah. If the Disney company had just stayed to what people thought it was, which was, you know, making little animated cartoons, never would have been in the Disney Cruise Line. One of the growing... Uh, divisions of of mm-hmm. Disney, you know, uh, three more ships coming online. If they had just stayed with theme parks, never would have gone into the Disney Vacation Club, which is which again is, is a hugely profitable and expanding uh, division. So, but again, why those are that, Jim? I was going to say, I'm no, go ahead. Biggest, I'm not the biggest fan on how Mickey is currently drawn in their new little shorts. But I love the color, and I love the fact that the company continues to invest in in, in redefining even Mickey. And well, well, well Mickey, and you know, we think that Mickey is eternal. His, his appearance has changed. You know, oh, yeah. all the, when he first appeared, he didn't have gloves and he didn't have shoes. You know, uh, so you know, Mickey has evolved, and I I agree with you that a lot of people do not like that uh, new redesign uh, of Mickey, and yet there have been um, ninety episodes of that cartoon series now, plus um, you know uh, two specials. And it seems to appeal to a new generation that that is the style of um, artwork that they they respond to because they've seen it on other animated shows. But I think what we need to take a look at is even though physically that's a different design, and we may like it, we may not like it, mm-hmm. Mickey is still Mickey. Mickey. Absolutely. And, and and those same fundamental values you spoke of earlier transcend mm-hmm. the, the decades and will be there when he's 100 and 150. Um, right, and, and who, who knows what he will look like at that time. But, but I'm sure there will still be some circles. Isn't it amazing to see a small child just get excited about Mickey Mouse? And yet they don't come with all the history of Mickey like you and I have. We know mm-hmm. the whole you know, and, and and we've seen it all. They just, but they see it and they respond to it, and it's it it's instantly part of them. Well, and, John Hench uh, said it, it's those round shapes. Those round shapes those are circles. things that we love. You know, things that we love in, in in life usually have those round shapes because they're they're comforting, they're non threatening. Uh, Hench said, you know, if you go back and look at the early Felix the Cat, Felix the Cat looked a lot like Mickey the Mouse, but he had sharp ears and, and sharp whiskers and all of that, pointy things. And so that's dangerous. And he says, 
Felix is really not around anymore. Whereas Mickey Mouse, we couldn't get rid of him if we tried. He is just that lovable and that ingrained. Well, I appreciate appreciate you sharing your experiences. Uh, we talked. Uh, we're going to summarize all this in the show notes for uh, and and, and I, I I I appreciate that, Jeff. I appreciate being invited on. And if if uh, uh, people go to Amazon.com or ThemeParkPress.com, they'll see. Some of the books that I've I've written, including yeah. uh, Who's the Leader uh, of the Club, uh, Leadership Lessons from Walt Disney, and all of that. And well, let's, talk um, about, let's talk about your current one. You've got a great new one coming in, perfect for the Christmas season. Right, uh, uh, right, right now. Just released uh, a week and a half seven. ago is uh, Vault of Walt number seven, Christmas edition. There have been six previous editions filled with stories of of Walt and the parks and the films and all this, this mm-hmm. particular edition is devoted just to Christmas. So there are, there's a section of stories about Walt at Christmas and uh, the Disney films like The Making of Nightmare Before Christmas and The Making of Mickey's Christmas Carol and all that. Uh, the parks, so the story behind the Osborne Festival of Lights and the Candlelight Processional and those things. And then a, a, a whole section of um, uh, miscellaneous uh, stories, including about uh, Disney comic books that were uh, specific uh, to uh, the Christmas season, Toys for Tots, uh, oh, yeah. all of those others. So I, I hope that that will be a wonderful Christmas gift for some people. I love that, and I think uh, I think that's a great. I think that's a great book to have as as you kind of get into the spirit of the holidays. And uh, um, and Jim, I just want to thank you for joining us on this podcast. Now, we're going to have you on here before um, we celebrate Mickey's hundredth anniversary. So, so I, I <laughs> oh, good. I, I'll I'll have some new stories by then. <laughs> you always have not only new stories, you have great stories, and it's just always fun to share uh, our love of Disney. Um, in in these kinds of settings, uh, because the one thing you and I share is just our love of all things Disney, and uh, yes, and so it's it's just fun. It's just fun to share. And and for your listeners, thank thank you for listening this long, and may all your Disney dreams come true. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this Disney at Work podcast. If you're listening to this podcast, you undoubtedly have a love of all things Disney. Don't you wish you could bring it to your own place of employment? Well, that's what we do at Disney at Work. Bring you best in business ideas from the happiest place on earth to you and your organization. I'm very excited to announce my newest book, Disney Leadership and You. You can order it now on Amazon and we invite you to check it out. This volume offers not only an inside look at how leaders at Disney create the magic, but how you can apply those principles and ideas back to your company. I'm also thrilled to share with everyone news of our upcoming Disney Best Practices 2019 Global Tour, 
we will be visiting every Disney theme park and every Disney resort worldwide in 2019, sharing best practices in customer service, employee engagement, and leadership. To learn more and to sign up for any or all of these programs, visit our site at disneyatwork.com. That does it for this week. Thank you for this week's show. We appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we really appreciate those who take the time to share this podcast and others like it with friends and colleagues. Stay tuned as we have new events, books, and programming available to you. If you want to know more about Disney at Work offerings, please subscribe by signing up to receive one of our free guides to include a comprehensive e-guide to Pandora, the world of Avatar, or to an in-depth look at Shanghai Disney Resort. You can sign up at DisneyAtWork.com. Also, if you need support in not only visiting all places Disney, but in booking any of your travel needs, please visit my co-host David Zanola. Just email David at Exclusive Travel Partners. You can also find David on Facebook at Exclusive Travel by David. Disney at Work is a part of Performance Journeys, committed to helping you improve your organization. If you would like a keynote speaker or a seminar, we offer a variety of topics to include leadership, employee engagement, customer service, teamwork, creativity, and innovation. We can do a program solely based on stories and ideas from Disney, or we can offer an assortment of great concepts and ideas, not just from Disney, but from other world-class organizations in the public and private sector. For more information, please visit performancejourneys.com. Better yet, reach out to me by email or phone and talk to me about what's happening in your organization. What can I do to help you take your team to the next level? Listening is the best gift I can offer you. Feel free to reach out and discuss your needs. That's it for now. Thanks for joining us. Now go out and make your day at work a magical one.